The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? For thousands of years, Confucianism has run through the fabric of Chinese society, politics and culture. Even today, China is still known as a Confucian country, though of course decades of communism has taken its toll. So what is this school of thought so fundamental to understanding the country, and how relevant is it still today? I'm joined by one of the world's leading experts on the philosophy, Professor Daniel Bell. In 2017, he was appointed the Dean of Shandong University, an unusual appointment for a foreigner in China, but one based on his expertise in Confucianism, because Shandong is a province of Confucius's birth. His new book, The Dean of Shandong, Confessions of a Minor Bureaucrat at a Chinese University, details some of the ups and downs of his time in that position. Daniel, welcome to Chinese Whispers. First of all, could you explain what Confucianism really is? Okay, so it's a very complex and diverse tradition. And even the term Confucianism is a bit misleading because in English, we tend to think of Confucianism is really about Confucius. But in Chinese, it's Rujia. So Kongzi is Confucius is one of the members of this tradition, but he himself was he viewed himself as a transmitter of an older tradition. And after him, there are many great thinkers. So it's not like Christianity where we have Jesus or you know Buddhism where we have Buddha. There's no like one person who represents the whole tradition. And it's always been interacting and engaging with other traditions from Taoism to legalism to Buddhism and more recently democracy and, and feminism. But that said, I think there are some core commitments. And the first commitment is that the good life involves the pursuit of compassionate and harmonious social relations, starting with a family and extending outwards. So this is where we learn about morality and care through the family, and then we extend that uh, to non-family members. And the state has a role in promoting family ties, not just because it's good for the family, but because it's good for the overall society. Basically, if you have stable and harmonious families, it's quite likely that the rest of society will be stable and harmonious as well. Now, the other, I'm going to simplify radically, but the other main point about this commitment is that the best life involves serving the community in the role of a public official. So there's a very strong uh, desire to be public official, to serve the community. And it, I mean, it sounds like it, it might be true, but it's not true. I mean, think of other traditions, like think of Plato, where the best tradition is being a philosopher who contemplates. And as a second choice, you go back into the cave and serve the community. Mm. Or in Christianity, it's through religious pursuits. But no, for Confucianism, it's very much this worldly. There's hardly anything about the afterlife. And the best life involves serving the community. And that's only minority people who have the time, ability, and inclination to do that. And the really important task is how to select and promote public officials with above average ability and virtue. And there's constant debates about how to do that and what institutions allow for that to happen. So these are some of the 
key points. And in Shandong province, where I spent five years serving as dean, the influence of Confucianism, arguably, but I don't think it's that arguable, is deeper than in other parts of China. I mean, people take a great deal of pride uh, in the attachment to Confucian heritage, and it influences everyday life, arguably more than other parts of China. So it's a big province of 100 million people. And the Confucian influence there is is felt in a deep way. So some of the sociologists who do research on Confucianism go to Shandong province to to see it, you know, pretty much live in action. Yeah. I really enjoy the bit in your book where you talk about um, the drinking culture that you, you've witnessed in Shandong that you experience and how, you know, you link that to Confucianism, this idea of toasting each other, which is something that on this podcast we've talked about quite a number of episodes ago. But Daniel, maybe you can just explain what you meant by that. How was how could a drinking culture be Confucian? So one of the uh, Confucian very much emphasizes moderation, with one exception that Kongzi, Confucius himself, said we could more or less drink without limits. But in, in, it, the point is not to drink without limits to get drunk. The point is that drinking is viewed as a kind of social glue, as, as a way of forging social trust and harmony between people. So it's, it's controlled drinking. It's highly ritualized. And in Shandong province, like Chufu is basically the home ground of Confucianism. It's where you have the most famous Confucius temple, the Kongmiao. Is that because that's where he was born? He was born right near Chufu, yeah. There's also the Confucian family cemetery, Kongling. It has 2,500-year heritage, and it's a great... So those who who have the surname Kong often can be part of that family line and are very proud to be buried in that family cemetery. So the the party secretary who hired me is a descendant of... Kong, his name is Kong, 76 generation descendant, very proud to be part of that. And yeah, so in Shufu, to go back to your question, when you uh, have a banquet or a, a fancy meal with friends, almost inevitably it would involve drinking alcohol. But the a person who hosts the banquet would have to give six toasts, and then it would be the second in charge to give six toasts, and so on. And strangely enough, the further you move from Chufu in Shandong province, the, the number of toasts decreases. So in Qingdao, where I served as dean, it was, it was usually three toasts per person. But the, the point eventually is that everybody would be involved, in, even those with low status. So the, the kind of seating arrangement is quite hierarchical. But eventually, through this toasting practice, everybody would feel part of the community. So it's a way of extending care. Of course, in practice, many things go wrong. You know, if there's too much drinking, things could go wrong. And Shandong province, unfortunately, is the most patriarchal part of China. So some of women often are not very happy to partake of these rituals. But in the university settings, it's much more civilized, where if you don't want to drink or if you're allergic, you could have a kind of water that looks like baijiu, um, and you could partake of the rituals without getting drunk if that's not what you're into. Yeah, I've just come back from China where I was, again, steeped oh. in this toasting <laughs> culture because, you know, I hadn't been to China in four years. And, you know, coming to it again, having been steeped in a British drinking culture, I think was quite interesting because I, I think listeners, you know, who haven't been to China, who haven't been on these banquets will find it hard to picture. But imagine a round table, let's say of 10 or right. 12 people. The person at right. the head of the table, of a circular table, is the one that's facing the door. Is that right? And then the seniority ripples down on either side. And you're saying that the person at the head of the table, opposite the door, has to do six toasts. And those are not toasts in general, right, are they? The toast to the guests at the table. And when you're toasting, only then can you drink. You can't drink by yourself. You can't lift your glass without saying something respectful or complimentary about your guests as well. Right. So you would never drink alone. It's always uh, communal drinking. And the toasting ideally would, would be witty or would have some historical reference 
and and designed to make people feel comfortable and generate laughter and joy. I have to say, I'm never That's confident enough. Yeah, I'm never confident <laughs> enough to be witty on that in in those occasions. And something else I learned from your book was the fact that the license plates, the car license plates of Shandong Province, also make reference to its Confucian heritage. Sure. So this was before China was unified.、Um, there were different、uh, states, and Kongzi Confucius was from the state of Lu Lu Guo, which now, of course, is long extinct. But the license plates have the character for Lu in all of Shandong Province, which again shows how proud they are. But to give you another example, on the license plates in the rest of China, I'm sh- as I'm sure you know, the lucky number is eight, right? Which because it sounds like wealth, but in Shandong it's number seven.、Oh. Why is that? Because the expression is "qi shang ba xia," so in other words, when you're 57 years old as a public official, if you still have hope of being promoted, but when you're 58, that's it. You're you're on the way to retirement. So in the license plates in in Shandong Province, you would see lots of number sevens and few number eights. It's the only part of China where you, where you would see that. Is that to do with Confucius、uh, or, as well? Yes, because again, the best life lies in serving、uh, as a public official, and the Shandong people love to compete to be public officials. It's of course you get great deal of respect, but then it's also extremely tiring, you know, as I found out. <laughs> so what you mean is that the very retirement age of public officials is embedded into what they consider as lucky or auspicious. Right, exactly. If you still have hope of being promoted when you're fifty-seven, so number seven is lucky, then that's a good thing. <laughs> but if you're fifty-eight and you're still in the same spot, you're doomed. Well, you're doomed. But you, you, that's it. You know, you're on the way to retirement. I wonder if they need to be lifting that by about a decade. I mean, considering the current leader of China, you know, we need to be talking about sixty-seven, sixty-eight instead. <laughs> Exactly, but another thing about Shandong Province that's interesting is that they take pride. They say we've never had an emperor, because they know that to get to the very top, it's pretty dirty politics. And the,、oh, sh- so and the Shandong. So they show off about not having. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and another so one more yeah, detail. Yeah, go on. Which, if you take Shandong Airlines above every seat, there is a, a quote from the Analects of Confucius. And for me, I usually I'm on seat number three A. Which has the line from Confucius that if your parents are still alive, "Fumu zai, fu yuan you," you should not travel far. Which is, you know, so in other words, it makes it's ridiculous to have it there because we feel very guilty on a plane.、Uh, but, <laughs> but, but they, but it's, but very passive aggressive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, that is the, you know, to me, what Confucianism means as a. Someone who grew up in China, and I think even though I've been in the UK for so many years, I still have been embedded in this idea of my view of family relationships is one of duty. I would say not one of transaction.、Right. So no matter how you know, no matter what I get back from my family members, especially those older than me, especially my parents, I have a duty towards them that's unconditional. But it's very so, different to what I see、uh, yeah. in in other cultures. So I think that's a very strong thing still in I, China. So I agree. So there's not an assumption like in the West or in Canada, where I'm from. When you're 18, you can care for your parents, but you don't have to, right? Exactly. But it's a moral obligation that's meant to be lifelong in, in China or countries with a Confucian heritage. But that said, I do think there's a difference between, and and this is where a lot of Confucianism gets distorted. You know, in Marxism we say vulgar Marxism. Like if you want to, you know, what's vulgar Marxism? Like if you see a painting, you want to understand the class background of the painter. You know, that's clearly distortion of Marx. So we have the same thing in Confucianism, 
this idea that unconditional obligation to obey your elderly parents, that's not in the Confucian ah, okay. classics. That's a clear distortion. I mean, if your parents do something morally wrong, you have an obligation, even young children, like the Di Gui, which is a Qing dynasty text for young children, very widely read in China now. It says, if what do you do if your parent does something wrong? Well, you criticize them. And if that doesn't work, then you wait till they're in a good mood. And then you try again. If that doesn't work, then you cry. You work on their emotions. If that doesn't work, then you just take it. And if the parents hit you, you know, take it. Of course, the last part is not one that we want That's to That's in a classical endorse, text. Yeah. And so, so the Confucians, you know, I mean, some of the vulgar distortions, like wives should blindly obey the husbands, children blindly obey the parents, or students blindly obey the teachers. I mean, that's really distortions from the classics. But those are the ones that have had a lot of sociological influence, unfortunately. That's really interesting. Well, I've, I've certainly learned something today, not necessarily to the good of my parents. But um, <laughs> Daniel, something else that's a distortion that you point out in your book is this idea of harmony, or at least the, the English language understanding of harmony as monotony or as uniformity. But you point out right. it's actually more about all the different parts of a thing working together. You can be diverse within the same thing. Exactly. So there's a saying from the Analects of Confucius, you know, Junzi, exemplary persons, which means should pursue. We're going to translate as diversity and harmony, but not tong, which is sameness, uniformity, conformity. There's a very explicit contrast. Where xiaoren, petty people, they pursue tong, sameness, but not which is we can trace diversity in harmony. So the and the metaphors that are used to describe harmony are like if you have one ingredient, one salt, only salt in a soup, it won't be good. You need many ingredients or music. You need many notes. Actually, the English notion of harmony in music is quite similar. Mm. There's a diversity there that produce something that's greater than the sum of the parts. Even in politics, like in the Zhuan, this ancient text has this view that. If you're a ruler and you only listen to one view of a minister, your state is, going, is on the way to be extinguished. You have to have diverse views, you know, and only then can you have a good policy. So the Confucian idea of harmony is really emphasizing that we respect, in fact, we love diversity, but within that diversity, we have a peaceful order and we try to have something greater uh, that comes out of that. So that's why, like, when I was watching the 2008 Olympics, the opening ceremony in Beijing, you probably remember that the character He was viewed as representing all of Chinese culture. And I was watching an American journalist. He, he was saying, oh, my God, look at all those soldiers marching in unison. This is what they mean by harmony. But that's not the Chinese idea of harmony. And every, it's not like an obscure interpretation. I mean, you know this. Every, you know, just about like every Chinese intellectual knows it's saying har butong. It's really used all the time, you know. But in English, it's very distorted because we don't distinguish clearly between or diversity in harmony and tong and sameness. So we really need to translate this as diversity in harmony to capture that, not just nuance, I mean, hugely important point. Yes, you know, I I would agree with that because as you say, it is the understanding of China as well. And Daniel, something else that I personally associate with Confucianism is, and this is probably something that I've kind of absorbed or the Chinese society has absorbed from the new culture movement of the early Republican years in China of bashing Confucianism, of saying that Confucianism is uh, the root of why feudal China declined when the West was going through the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution going into modern science. Confucianism held China back because it was all about respecting your elders. It was all about learning the classical texts, rote learning, and it was all about the civil service examinations. Do you think that there's a point there that Confucianism is to blame for the decline of China before the modern age? Well, I think that, so some of these criticisms are quite old. Like when the legalists like Shangyang and Han Feidze, they criticize Confucianism pretty much on similar ground as like one of the founders of the communist 
Party, Chen Du Xiu, right? He, he, he specifically blamed Confucianism for China's backwardness. And why is that? Well, again, the legalists in the warring states period, they really hated Confucian. They said, we are in times of chaos now. We need a strong state and you can't rule a strong state with virtue. We need harsh laws that people and that force people to do things that they don't want to do, like fighting and farming. And so it's similar in the early 20th century. It says Confucianism, you know, also Lu Xun, right? Yes, exactly. In, in that, yeah, they're just scholars who, who have this kind of pursue their own obscure thoughts, but that's not relevant. For modern day side days, so now we live in a this is again similar to the Warring States period, a ruthless doggy dog world, and we need to have a strong state, and for that we have to overcome the Confucian tradition. So I, in that sense, it, it echoes a long tradition. But I so, think so that, those, again, there were so a lot Daniel, of Daniel. Just briefly, those critiques yeah. when you talk about Han Fei uh, and the Warring States, just for listeners to know, those are like thousands yeah. of years apart. Those critiques of Confucianism. Yeah. But, right, but exactly. Same. So this was before China was unified by the self-proclaimed first emperor, Qin Shi Huangdi, who unified China according to legalist principles and, you know, famously buried, maybe controversial scholars alive uh, with their books. And he built the Great Wall, unified the country, unified the language pretty much and built up the first modern bureaucracy according to legalist principles. This is more than 2,200 years ago. But that was a short-lasting dynasty because it was, well, again, this is a kind of Confucian interpretation. It was so cruel that eventually the people rebelled and couldn't stand it. So after that, the rest of Chinese history, legalism had a bad name, but it was the ideas were revived in the 20th century. And actually, Chairman Mao, the first work he ever wrote was dedicated to Shanyang, who is the most like hardcore, amoral of, of the legalists from over 2,020 years ago. Now, just explain what you mean by legalism, because from, from what I've heard so far from you, it sounds almost a bit Machiavellian, or at least a popular understanding of what Machiavelli was. It's far more Machiavellian than Machiavelli himself. <laughs> it's completely amoral. There's no redeeming feature. The assumption is that, <laughs> okay. really, I mean... I'm, you picked the, a team. The, the, the assumption... <laughs> <laughs> the, the assumption is that people basically are narrowly selfish and they cannot be motivated to do hard work unless you use harsh punishments. And the point, the ultimate point is to strengthen the state. They don't even say, I mean, sometimes those who want to be more charitable say it's a short term thing. We live in times of chaos. Now we need these measures. But in the long term, we need to rely on more Confucian style, compassion and so on. But some of the legalists like Shangyang, I mean, it's really the idea is that we need to have harsh punishments to force people to do hard labor, farming, and to and fighting. That's the way to have a strong state. And the idea is that we can rely on compassion and virtue to rule people, they strongly objected to that. So there's this really strong this struggle between the Confucians and the legalists. It goes way back in Chinese history. And I think it's still very much alive today, that struggle. Yeah. And for legalists, what relationship does morality have with politics? Does a politician have to be moral at all? No, no, quite the opposite. It's completely immoral. Whatever works to strengthen the state is morally right. justified. So it's like you have, I mean, Machiavelli, I, 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 when I first read Machiavelli, I thought, oh my, this is shocking. You know, he says the ruler has to learn how not to be good. But then when you read these legalists from more than 2,000 years ago. I mean, for them, this was like a mild statement. You know, they, like Shangyang says, you know, that you, you have to do things that you're cruel things that your enemies are embarrassed to do. You know, they, right. whatever works, extreme cruelty, if that's effect, you know, and, and this is just to give you an example, how they want very objective ways of promoting soldiers. How do you do that? 
the numbers of heads of decapitated enemy soldiers. You know, this is how if I killed two soldiers and I, it's measurable through the number of, of heads, you know, then I should be promoted as opposed to my neighboring soldier who just killed one person. And this is a completely amoral and really endorsing, I mean, from a, you know, <laughs> extremely cruel means yeah you know? yeah and would you say that if they're effective yeah. would you say that over the period of china's history these are the two main political traditions it's sometimes combining sometimes tussling against each other so very much so but because legalism was viewed as too cruel it survived like you can almost say like semis that like under the surface until the 20th century it was very much there so now there's very good works now that are saying that actually in practice confucianism and legalism were often combined there's a very good book uh, by Zhao Dingxing called the confucian legalist state where he shows how this worked throughout chinese history mm. but it's only 20th century that legalism became officially revived again times of chaos when china's bullied and you need to strengthen the state i mean this is when these legalist ideas come to the fore again yeah. But I wouldn't say that the new culture movement, you know, we're talking about people like the novelist Lu Xuing, we're talking about Chen Duxiu, the right. founder of the Chinese Communist Party. Right. You know, I wouldn't say that they're out there killing people and chopping off heads. For them, it was about progress. It was about moving forward. And do you not think that Confucianism was partly to blame for the fact that China didn't value things like uh, scientific research and it was learning more about the analect again and again and again? You know, there is something in that, isn't there? Uh, there is, but again, I think we do think we need to distinguish between like the you know high Confucianism and the vulgar Confucian. Like the mm. idea that Confucians would favor rote memorization—that's just that's not or, or learning exams through exams. I mean that examination system came much later, right? That started more or less in under the Sui Dynasty, more than like 1,300 years ago. So for Confucians, they have this idea. It's more like, we, what, to use modern language, more like a liberal arts curriculum, right? They have six arts, including mathematics and archery and so on. They want a fully developed personality that's widely uh, educated. So the idea that you should spend your lifetime memorizing a text, I mean, that's not really Confucianism. You know, that's like a vulgar interpretation. of Confucianism. So they attacked it, perhaps rightly so, for delaying China's progress. But on the other hand, it may not be a fair mm. interpretation of confusion. In fact, this way of having like the, just these crude measurements of using exams to assess progress, I mean, that arguably, and these behavioral measures, that arguably was more to, again, to legalism than okay. to confusion, even though it wasn't called that. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's talk about the 20th century then, because clearly Confucianism was one of the things that the communists had a problem with as well. Right. But I've noticed that in the 21st century, there's been something of a Confucian revival, by which I mean, you know, just give you one example. In my primary school in China, when I was growing up, there were pictures of Lenin, Stalin, Mao on the walls. Then when I went back to visit when I was in my teens, it was pictures of people like Confucius and other old thinkers. So has there been something of a revival in China? So, uh, yeah, I think there, there has been very much so. And the deadest time for Confucian was the Cultural Revolution, when there was an attack on the four olds, everything old was viewed to be bad and responsible for China's backwardness. But that laid the seeds for China's revival because some of the you know smart people who were forced to read Confucianism and other classics to denounce them, they, when they read them, they secretly thought, this is actually quite interesting and much better than advertised. And once there was more opportunity for freedom of expression after, in the period of reform, then those same people became some of the leaders of the Confucian comeback. So that's one of the things that happened. But there's also political reason that 
the ruling organization itself views that, you know, Marxism, of course, is central to its legitimacy, but not sufficient. Mm. And now it views itself as a carrier of a much older civilizational tradition. And since Confucianism was a dominant political tradition, then it makes sense to appeal to Confucianism in order to increase its legitimacy. But there's also an economic reason that, again, for most of the 20th century, many Chinese intellectuals and reformers blame Confucian for China's backwardness. But then the past like few decades, it turns out that countries with a Confucian heritage, not just China, but South Korea, you know, Japan, uh, Singapore, Vietnam, and so on, they modernized fast in a relatively peaceful way. And maybe some of the Confucian values that were contributed to that, or at least allowed it, like this idea that there's a lifelong quest for progress, for, for improvement, the high value placed on education, a this-worldly outlook, concern for future generations. I mean, all these values that owe some sense to this Confucian heritage actually facilitated modernization. But there's a downside to modernization, which is that it makes people more individualistic mm. and selfish. And there's a need to counter that with a tradition that emphasizes social responsibility. And this is where Confucianism also has an important role to play. So I think for all these reasons, Confucianism made a come. But I think the comeback has stalled more or less since 2008, with the possible exception of Shandong province. And partly, I think it's there was a time when many, like including myself, where I wrote a book in 2008. I think it was called China's New Confusion, where I only half jokingly like argued that, not argued, said that the party would be renamed the Chinese Confucian Party. There was a time when it, it seemed like Confucian might actually replace Marxism, but now no longer. Now it's both are there. The Marxist tradition itself has made a big comeback, especially since 2008, when capitalism was viewed as contributing to this financial crisis. So both academically and politically, uh, Marxism has made a big comeback. It's, so there's like this joint comeback, so to speak. In the 1980s, you know, uh, uh, probably you're too young to remember, but very few Chinese intellectuals or students look to either Marxism or yeah. Confucianism for inspiration. But now both, uh, I think, serve as political inspiration for better or worse. No, yeah. it's something that has been reflected to me in my conversations that people worry that China has lost its ideological underpinning, that there's a crisis of meaning, right. that now that Maoism or Marxism wasn't believed in in the reform and opening era, what is there to replace it? Surely money earning can't be the thing that replaces people's spiritual right. needs. And so I think right. there was a need to go back to tradition. But when you say that there's a now of a bit of a combining with Marxism as well, do you mean that on like a society level or on a political level? Or do you mean both? It's both. I mean, certainly at the political level now, there's many, most of the appeals to values-based legitimacy invoke both the Confucian and the Marxist traditions. And there's a lot of um, academic work trying to uh, look at to what extent they're compatible or not. I mean, at some level, th there is a clear compatibility. Like Confucians strongly emphasize that the first obligation of government is to provide material well-being for the people because that's viewed as a necessary condition for morality in most cases. It's hard to be moral if you're always fighting or struggling for your next meal. So China is the earliest country in the world where the government had a very strong obligation to alleviate poverty. So I guess that maps on to some socialist ideas. Of course, there are clear differences, right? Like Confucians would say you should rely on peaceful transition, whereas Marxists, at least in some interpretations, say we need violent revolution. And even the end point is different. For Confucians, again, it's, it's compassionate uh, so, and, and harmonious social relations. 
for Marxism, the ultimate endpoint is a it's the pursuit of creative work, right? The Marxist ideal is that advanced machinery would do most of the necessary work and then humans would be free to realize their creative essence. So in that sense, there's clear differences as well. But I have to say that um, I don't know if the Chinese Communist Party has much ideological underpinnings at all at the moment, you know, despite its name still having communism in it. Is it truly any of these schools of thought that we've thought about or maybe just possibly very, very pragmatic, very, very realist? So... I mean, it depends who, you know, to me, the Communist Party is a, an organization with, you know, over 90 million people, extremely diverse. And most of the uh, people that I talk to are academics and reform minded mm-hmm. intellectuals, most of whom are party members. And for them, it's a very serious question about what are the political ideals that should animate us and that, and that should influence our reform. Um, but of course, there's also people who we are influenced by this kind of legalist or maybe this Leninist tradition that the ultimate aim is to strengthen the state and what we do, whatever is necessary for that purpose, right? So these traditions, I think, are all uh, at the same time struggling with each other. <laughs> Daniel Bell, former dean of Shandong, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you. For, it was a, lo- a lovely discussion. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.